Matthew, we're going to be looking at seven verses in chapter 16. There was a time during the most horrible of the persecutions of the Jews by the Nazis in Poland that an old Jewish cemetery keeper came into his cemetery one morning and found that during the night a Jewish woman, a pregnant Jewish woman, had crept into one of the open graves and given birth to a son and then died. As he took the child in his arms... He said to himself, this must be the Messiah, for only the Messiah would choose to be born in a grave. Well, you and I know that that wasn't the Messiah, but the image that that cemetery keeper recognized is very apt. Life in the context of death. Life lived in the context of death. Jesus was born to die. And that truth, which to our ears is so clear and so understandable and so powerful, I mean, it's the, it's the engine of the gospel, it's so hard for so many people to, to grasp. So many people that we, that we share that with, they just, they just don't understand it. It's hard for them to, to comprehend It's even hard for some of the disciples to comprehend. Look with me at chapter 16, starting in verse 21. And there God's word says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Were he still in Caesarea Philippi? This watershed moment in the Gospel of Mark, this watershed moment in the, in the life of the disciples with Jesus. And it's a watershed moment for several reasons. We looked at one of them last week. It's a watershed moment because there it is where Jesus is revealed as the divine Messiah. The divine Messiah. He asks his disciples who they think he is. And he, without, and Peter, without skipping a beat, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is identifying him as the Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited, enfleshed God. The snake crusher of Genesis 3, the prophet like Moses of, Genesis, of Deuteronomy 18, the the king like David of 2 Samuel 7. But what Peter didn't know himself even, that he was also proclaiming that this Jesus was the rejected one of Psalm 22. He was the long-awaited fulfillment of, of Samson, who in his own death crushes his greatest enemies. 
Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of Isaiah 53. That suffering servant, that servant that will suffer and die for the iniquities of others. Yet the irony that we have here in these verses is that Peter doesn't know it. He's saying it, but he doesn't know it. He actually rejects the idea that the Messiah must die. He's rejecting the idea that the Messiah has to die. This is what Jesus was going to make clear again and again. It's what he wants to make clear here. It says in verse 21, from that time forward, from this time forward, as soon as Peter declared him to be the divine Messiah, from that time forward, our text says, he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Notice from that time on, if you just glance probably to the right in your Bible, you can see in chapter 17, he says this same thing in starting in verse 22. He tells them again, and he tells them again in chapter 20, this same thing. And he'll tell them several times in the upper room this same thing. Why is he telling them this over and over? He had hinted at his death earlier. You remember when, when the crowds or the chief priests came to them and they asked for a sign? And what did Jesus say? No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man will be, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Scripture doesn't tell us how, how they reacted to that. That's interesting. I went back and I read those and it doesn't tell us that they, the light bulb went off. It doesn't tell us if the people understood that reference. But what we see here is Peter and the disciples apparently didn't get it either. Because Peter, like everyone else, was looking for the Isaiah 9 Messiah. The Isaiah 9 Messiah that we just read about. They, he, he wasn't and nobody else was looking for the Isaiah 53 Messiah. We read that together, Isaiah 9 foretells a Messiah not born in a grave, but born on a throne, right? For untrusted child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Oh, it's going to be a, a, a reigning political Messiah. Of the increase, increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He is going to bring peace to this land, obviously getting rid of the, the Romans. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom... He will reign from this time forward forevermore. Oh, he's going to sit on the throne. That's what everybody had in their mind. The Jews were expecting that type of Messiah. I think that's why if you glance back up at verse 20, you see that he tells them not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah. Why would he do that? It's called the Messianic secret in the, in the book of Mark. He tells them again and again, don't tell them, don't tell anybody yet. Liberal theology tells us that it's because Jesus didn't believe he was the Messiah. That's not true. It's not that Jesus didn't believe and embrace his mission, but that he knows that if that gets out, they will be thinking of Isaiah 9. That the, the Jews will be thinking of the reigning Messiah, and he won't get any of the work that he needs to get done done. 
He better to keep quiet than raise unwanted expectations. And we see the result of those unwanted expectations in Peter's rebuke, don't we? In verse 22. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Other translations say, forbid it, God. He couldn't imagine Jesus suffering and dying. He had no category for a Messiah that dies. What use would that be for Israel? What use would it be for him personally if this Messiah died? Peter simply had no category for this. Isn't that true of of the people we share Christ with? When you share the gospel about this Jesus that comes because he loves them and dies because he wants to absorb their sin payment and raises again, they they have no category for a dying Messiah. They have no category for that. It makes no sense that a man suffers and dies and comes to life again. How could that take have a bearing on my soul? But isn't that precisely what the gospel proclaims? Isn't that the, the counterintuitiveness that the gospel is? That this man coming and dying on a cross does have a bearing on your soul? In John 6, the people asked Jesus one day, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Tell us something to do. What do we need to do? That's the question of all of our hearts, isn't it? Just give me something to do. If you remember what Jesus answered, he said, the work of God is this, to believe on the one that he has sent. In other words, your eternal destiny does not hinge on what you do, but on what you believe. Your eternal destiny hinges on what you believe, not what you do. Not how good you are. Not how kind you are to your fellow man. Not how, how, much, how, how deeply and sincerely you are trying to live a good life. It doesn't depend on that. Your eternal destiny hinges on what you believe about Jesus. Let me ask you a series of questions. Do you believe that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? Do you believe that you cannot save yourself? Do you believe that Jesus was born in the flesh, God come in the flesh? Do you believe that this Jesus lived a sinless life here on earth, obeying God perfectly? Do you believe that Jesus sacrificed himself in your stead, taking the punishment for sin by dying on the cross? Do you believe that he actually died? And that he was buried. And that three days later he rose again from the dead. The answer to those questions controls your eternal destiny. 
heaven and hell hang in the balance over how you answer those questions, over what you believe about what Jesus did. English Bishop John Ryle wrote this, on matters of church government and forms of worship, men may differ and yet reach heaven safely. On matters of Christ's atoning death as a way of peace, truth is only one. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. Error on many points is only a skin disease, but error about Christ's death is a disease of the heart. Let us here take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all of our hopes must be Christ has died for us. Amen. That's it. Brothers and sisters, we can differ on modes of baptism. Children, adults. We can differ on on how the church is to be run. Do you have a bishop or a presbytery or a congregation? We can differ on praise songs or hymns. We can differ on expository preaching or topical preaching. We can differ on tongues, on healing. Those are skin diseases. But get the gospel wrong and your heart dies. All our hopes rely on the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so for many, and for many it just doesn't make sense. Let me ask you one final question. And you sitting here today, does it make sense to you? Does a light go off in your head and you believe that? It certainly didn't for Peter. As James Boyce said, Peter was a prophet one moment and advancing the agenda of the devil the next. And Jesus knows that he must take this path. And here Peter is tempting him not to go down this path. And look at Jesus' reaction in verse 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have the mind of, of, uh, the, mind on, of the things of God, but on things of men. Now, Jesus is not calling Peter Satan here, but he's certainly identifying a very familiar temptation that Satan tempted him with. When he was in the wilderness in chapter 4, if you remember, Satan tempted him three times. The first one, he dared him to turn stones into bread. The second one was to cast himself down off the temple heights. And the third one was probably the hardest for him. Because Satan said, listen, just, just bow down and worship me and I will give you the world. The world's yours. Just do this one simple thing. Take the path of least resistance. In other words, you can have it all without suffering. Don't go to the cross. Take the easier path. Here's the crown. Circumvent the cross. And that's a real temptation for Jesus. We see that later on in his life, don't we, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same temptation. 
I think Mel Gibson kind of got it right there. It says earlier that Satan left him and, and looked for another opportune time. I tend to think that was an opportune time for Satan. The night before. Same temptation. The crown without the cross. That's the temptation for us all, isn't it? The crown without the cross. That's what our flesh wants. The crown without the cross. Just give me the crown. No suffering. Thank you. It won't cost me anything. Thank you. We avoid suffering and inconvenience and embarrassment for the gospel all the time. The crown without the cross. I mean, that's why the lottery is so popular. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, I can have the crown. And without any work. Our flesh avoids the cross in this life. That's why the health wealth gospel that is prolific on the airways is so popular. That's why people tune in. It's the crown without the cross. Yet the upside down kingdom's main principle is the cross has to come before the crown. That's the path Jesus must follow. And brothers and sisters, however hard this is for us to read, that's the path that we must follow. That's the path that we must follow. Look with me at verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or shall a man give to, in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. In his kingdom. I want you to underline, if you're a Bible underliner, verse 25. If that's you, if you like to do that, underline verse 25. For that is the foundational principle that we have here. It's the foundational principle of the kingdom of God. To save your life, you have to lose your life. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. That's the path that Jesus calls us to. And it's the path of descent. Bill Hybels wrote, you probably have never heard someone say, hey, congratulations on your demotion. Or, hey, I just heard the good news, you lost your fortune. People don't say such things, he says, in a world where upward mobility is the ultimate aspiration. Downward mobility is never a good thing. But just consider Jesus' life for a second. Think about it. Once he began his life on earth, Jesus never stopped descending. Omnipotent owner of all things, yet he had no home. King of kings, yet he became a servant to all. The source of truth was found guilty of blasphemy. 
The Creator was spit on by His creatures. He died gasping for air on a, on a cross. And when He died, His descent was complete. From the pinnacle of praise in the universe to the ultimate debasement and torture, as Philippians says, even death on a cross. Jesus never stopped descending in his entire life. And yet we think that we can find a better way. We don't have to follow him. But that is the path. And he beckons us to follow. Throughout the New Testament, that is the path. In Romans 8, we're called heirs of God and joint heirs with the Messiah. Awesome. Crown. Very next line. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Later, Peter understands this when he's writing to the scattered churches in in his first letter. In chapter 2, he says, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And then he says, This is what you were called to do. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Brothers and sisters, these are the footsteps that Christ has for us. We are called to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. First, we're called to deny ourselves. In 2002, Paul McCartney released a two-sided album where he sang a lot of the old Beatles favorites. On the reverse of that album were the credits. And for the first time, songs were listed as written by McCartney and Lennon. This is not a divisive thing, insisted McCartney. It's not Lennon or McCartney. I'm not asking that Lennon's name be taken off. It's just that I think mine should be first. That's us. We want to be first. We want the power and the prestige and the honor. We want the recognition. That's the way of the world. That's the bent of our flesh. But Christ calls us to deny all that. You know, I wish I could do some Greek magic here and say it doesn't really mean deny yourself. It doesn't really mean that. I can't. Because that's exactly what it means. Deny yourself. I say many times, just have a healthy distrust of yourself. Don't distrust yourself totally, but have a healthy perspective. Arthur Pink says, growth in grace is growth downward. It is a form of lowering your estimate of yourself. It is a deepening realization of your nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that you're not worthy of the least of God's graces. 
Brothers and sisters, that simply doesn't make sense to our flesh. Deny yourself. Go down. Have a lower estimate of yourself. Because our flesh always wants what it wants. It wants. And we fight a losing battle here, brothers and sisters, unless we really implore the Spirit within us to help us. Otherwise, it just becomes a work. You cannot do this. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot deny myself. I want what I want. But I need the Spirit's enabling to say no to myself. Dominic Barbary of the 18th century missionary wrote, no matter what my efforts, efforts I make, I cannot deny myself without his grace. I'm like a frog which, no matter how high it leaps, always finishes back in the mud. No matter how hard I try to escape myself, I always come back to myself and my self-love. He writes, draw me then, O Lord, draw me after you, for unless you do, I cannot even take one step away from myself. That's how hard it is. That's the truth. Our flesh combined with the world and Satan's temptation is way too powerful for you. You need the Spirit. Only He can really help you to deny yourself here. Our flesh seeks to exalt ourselves all the time. That's our default. That we, we jump, but we slide back down right into the mud. We have to pray and rely on the enabling work of the Holy Spirit to help us die to ourselves. Are you willing to pray that the Spirit will help you lower your estimate of yourself? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to pray to the Spirit that He will help you fight that perpetual grab for prominence and power and prestige and recognition? Are you willing to say, Spirit, help me to deny the convenience that I seek, the comfort, the ease of life? That, by the way, we can all choose. We can find our way around crosses. But are you willing to, to push into it and to deny yourself? Only the Holy Spirit can help us die to that craving, to die to self. We're called to deny ourselves. We're also called to take up our cross. The disciples knew exactly what Jesus meant here. That's a less clear for us, but the disciples knew exactly what they meant. The cross was a terrible instrument of suffering and, and death. They've, they've seen them up on the hills for years and years. To take up their cross meant a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. That's what Jesus meant, and that's what they heard, and that's what we have to hear. A willingness to suffer and sacrifice. Up to and including death. Helen Rosevere was a British missionary, uh, medical missionary, 
who worked for many years in Zaire. During the revolutions there in the 1960s, she often faced brutal beatings and other forms of torture. On one occasion, when she was about to be executed, she feared God had forsaken her. In that moment, she said she sensed the Holy Spirit saying to her the following, Helen, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. This is what that means. These are not your sufferings. They're my sufferings. All I ask is that you loan me your body. It's an interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? Loaning Jesus your body. Are you willing to loan Jesus your body in this life? Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Are you willing to take up your cross? R.C. Sproul says to follow Jesus is to live in the shadow of the cross. If we want to join him in his glory, we must first join him in his disgrace, shame, and humiliation. I think all R.C. Sproul there is doing is putting different words to what we said earlier in Romans 8.16. It's the cross before the crown, brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to. Are you willing to be disgraced for Christ? Are you willing to give up your reputation for Christ? Are you willing to to share the gospel with somebody you've known for years that you've never shared with And put that relationship on the line. Because maybe they won't want to be around you anymore. Are you willing to suffer inconveniences in this life? Are you willing to take up your cross? Because only if you're willing to do that. Only if you're willing to do that. To take up your cross and lose your life, will you save it? That's the principle here. I want you to listen closely to how G.K. Chesterton describes this. He writes, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of readiness to die. The paradox is the whole principle of courage. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to get his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness for dying. He must not merely cling to life. He must not merely wait for death. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He he ends poetically by saying, he must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you seek to lose your life, 
for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, you'll save it. Jesus is calling us to pursue eternal life with a furious indifference to what happens to us, to our death, death of our reputation, death of our social standing, death in many different ways. So we have to take up our cross. Eternal life will only be found through a strange carelessness to dying to self in this one. Lastly, we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. That's the call of Christ on our life, to follow him in denying self, follow him in a willingness to suffer, and follow him here in obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's his food. It's all he's about. James Boyce wrote, Jesus is not only a door to be opened, but a path to be followed. And that path is a path called obedience. Obeying Christ's commands. I mean, that's part of the Great Commission, isn't it? We tend to think of the Great Commission as, okay, go and share. Yes. But do you remember what he, what he actually says there? Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. That's the path. MacArthur says, true discipleship is submission to the Lordship of Christ that becomes a pattern of life. And in other words, obedience is a fruit of true salvation. Not perfect obedience, but certainly a desire to follow Christ, a desire to obey Him. And in a progressive sanctification. And the reward for denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus in this life is the crown in the next life. In a recent NCAA cross-country championship held in Riverside, California, 123 out of 128 racers missed a critical turn and went in the wrong direction. One competitor, Mike Delcavo, stayed on the right 10,000-meter course, and he began waving to his fellow, fellow competitors to come over and join him. Because he knew he was on the right course, and 123 others did not. Asked what his competitors thought of his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd, Delcavo responded, they, I guess they kind of thought it funny that I went in the right way. Jesus is teaching here that the cross has to come before the crown. Brothers and sisters, as you run, most people will think you're running the wrong course. You're going the wrong way. As you wave to them, a few might come. But the vast majority of people will think you're living your life in a crazy fashion. Just remember when you start feeling that, what Christ says here. You're going to look strange because the cross always comes before the crown.
Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for that descent that you modeled for us. And I pray to you, Holy Spirit, that all who have heard this word today, that you will help enable us to run that race, that descending race, that downward mobility, that everyone will look at us and think that is just crazy. You will help us to resist the temptation to veer off that course and pursue the crown before the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.